Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he constantly used short stories or parables to communicate spiritual truths to the crowds that gathered to hear him. By telling parables, the secrets of the kingdom would be revealed to Jesus' disciples, but they would be hidden from his opponents. Listen to this talk from the parable series as we dive into some of Jesus' most memorable stories. Well, good morning. Before we begin uh, the message part, today I'd like to take a minute just and uh, pray. I think today's topic's a little tough, and so I just want to pray for God's grace as we look at it this morning. Heavenly Father, we just look to you. We thank you that your word is alive, and it's able, Lord, to uh, work within our own lives and transform us. I think how even the gospel message is the power to save people, that message And Lord, today we ask you that you use your word in people's hearts. We ask you, Lord, to give us understanding. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, it was common for churches to have revival services. I'm curious, how many of you have been to a revival service before? Okay, well, a fair, fair number of hands. It's probably been 50 years since I've been to one. These revival services, usually a church will have a, an evangelist or a pastor from out of state come in for several days, maybe a one, Monday through Friday or a Wednesday through Saturday type of thing, and, and they'll speak. And, and the revivals or revival services are intended to do two things. Number one, it's to kind of energize the church, the church that's putting on this event. Uh, We just need to be revived sometimes, uh, a kick in the pants type of thing. And so that's what revivals were kind of about. But there was a second purpose that revivals served, and that is they provided an opportunity for the people who were part of that church, that congregation, to invite their friends and neighbors and relatives and come to these services where those ones would hear about Jesus they come to understand the gospel, that we need to trust Jesus Christ with our eternal destiny. And, and so the, those who did these revival services, the speakers, were often even called evangelists. And the idea was to spread the gospel and help reach people for Christ. And because the nature of these revival services, because a big part of it was really opening people's eyes to their spiritual condition and their need for a savior. Because those things were true, oftentimes the topics that were chosen in the revival services were kind of really kind of sobering topics. They talked about, uh, you know, the return of Christ, or they talked about the judgment to come, or the holiness of God, or they talked about heaven and hell, and things like that. And oftentimes when I would go to these revival services, because it was my dad's church that was putting these on, I would find myself, when I got toward the end of his talk, I'd find myself uh, concerned, like a little bit afraid. I knew where I stood with God. I mean, I'd put my trust in Christ before and had, had prayed to receive Christ, as the expression goes, many times before. But when I found myself listening to a talk on hell, for example, it, it caused me to realize, no matter what, I don't want to get this thing wrong. And so I find myself praying that same prayer, you know, along, just in case, even though I didn't really doubt where I was, but just in case. Now, as I grew older, I began to question that approach to, to reaching people for Christ. 
It seemed like it was what people call fear tactics, like you're trying to scare people into a relationship with God. And, and so I, I thought in my mind, maybe that's not a good thing. You know, how many people respond out of fear instead of really entering into a relationship with God and, and they pray a prayer because they're afraid or whatever else. And so I wondered that, and probably for several years I wondered about that because maybe a better approach is to talk about the love of God. And God's love certainly can be powerful to reach people. You know, Romans 2, 4, we read the kindness of God leads to repentance. And I thought, well, maybe people are more won over to God and to Christ when our message is a message of love. But the thing about age is that it keeps going. And I'm older now. And as I've gotten to the age where I'm standing right now, I've come to realize that both God's love and God's holiness and the judgment to come, both of those are, are subjects that God could use to bring people into a relationship with himself, and both of them are, are really good. Solomon wrote, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Now, that, that word that's used for fear, both in the Old and New Testament, it's hard to translate in the English language. It doesn't mean to be afraid. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It, it means, you know, it wasn't saying you need to be just afraid of God like this, cowering before him. But it does have the idea of, of having reverence and recognition that God is God and you are not. And part of the fear of the Lord is recognizing that one day we're going to kind of be held into account for the things we've done with our lives, and that should get our attention. And this is part of what the Holy Spirit has been tasked to do. Jesus was telling his disciples about the fact that he was going to send his Holy Spirit. And part of the Spirit's job description is found in John 16, 8, where Jesus said, when he, a reference to the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So part of what the Holy Spirit is doing is convicting the world about the fact that there is a standard of righteousness, and God is holy and right. And that there is a thing called sin, and sin is a, a big problem, and we need to be convinced and convicted about our sin or we'll never find a savior, and about the judgment to come, and those all work together, and I think that's part of the work that the Spirit is going to be doing. And it all comes down to that it does indeed matter. All of this matters that we're going to be talking about here today, that there is a God, that there is a judgment and I know it's not a pleasant subject, but it's something that's found throughout the pages of the Bible, and I think it's an important one. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, he said, for God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil, God sees it all. And he was recognizing that there's a God, that one day we're accountable to, to this God. And you say, well, that's the Old Testament, you know, because the Old Testament's more about, like, judgment and those kinds of things. No, Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, speaking about himself, he says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll reward each according to what he has done, demonstrating that it matters the things we do. And Paul talked about the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, he said, therefore, whether we are at home or away, let me stop for a moment, but when he says at home, he's talking about being at home with Jesus. And when he, when he says away, he's talking about being here. We're away from Jesus right now. 
So Paul clearly viewed that's my real home, but he said whether we're home with Jesus or away, he said we make it as Christians, he's writing to Christians, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For, and he gives the reason why, we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ. Some of your versions translate this, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he's done in the body, whether good or worthless. Now some versions say good or bad, But it's not good or bad, it's good or worthless. In other words, we're going to be evaluated as Christians based on whether our deeds had eternal weight, worth. And he goes on to say, therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. He's talking to Christians. And the word fear in my study Bible has this note, an asterisk. It says, no single English word conveys every aspect of the word fear in this phrase. The meaning includes worshipful submission, reverential awe, and obedient respect to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Now, I know this isn't a real fun subject, and you say, why are we talking about this today? Well, we've been going through a series related to the parables, and today we're coming to one of the parables that Jesus talked about that kind of ends in a, a sobering way. And one of the things, by the way, we're going to discover this morning, and this will be a surprise to some of you, but... There are actually two judgment days, not just one. And the one I just read about in in 2 Corinthians here, that is the first judgment day. And what Paul was talking about when it says we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that particular judgment is only for Christians. And the purpose of that judgment is not to determine whether people go to heaven or not. That's not the purpose of this first judgment that Paul talked about here. That issue has been taking care of when you put your trust in Christ. You're going to heaven. And so Christians are the only ones that stand before this particular judgment seat or tribunal of Christ that we just read about. And what that's about is giving Christians the rewards for the things they've done, whether the things they've done have been useful or not, whether they've accomplished some eternal value or whether there's no eternal value in the things that we've done in our lives. And that's what we're going to be evaluated on. But I want us to understand, and we're going to see in a minute, There are two judgment days, not just one. And this first one, it will involve people that don't know Christ, as we'll see in a minute. But for Christians, this is where Christ is going to, we're going to get our new body. This is where he's going to reward us for what we've done. The second judgment is going to come back later. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that the parable we're going to look at today ends with these words, Matthew 25, 46. It says they, and it's a reference to the goats. So this is the parable of the sheep and the goats. They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So he talks about eternal punishment. He talks about eternal life. People, again, don't like this. And and this is Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one talking about this. And it's not just in the New Testament. Daniel in the Old Testament also talked about this eternal life versus this eternal punishment thing. In Daniel 12, 2, he said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. Now, what I want us to understand, if you're a Christian here today, I told you you're part of this first judgment, and that's a judgment of rewards But there are other people that are going to be present at that judgment called goats in the parable we're going to look at. And their destiny is this eternal place of shame and calls it eternal contempt. 
Daniel described it that way. Now, I want us to realize we don't have to be afraid of this subject. As Christians, we can know exactly where we stand. We don't have to wonder, you know, am I, am I going to heaven or not? And, and I don't think we need to even wonder what's going to happen when we meet Christ face to face based on, on how we live our lives. Our parable today, though, is found in Matthew 25, and so I'd like us to turn, uh, beginning in verse 31, we're going to begin reading there, and I want to mention one thing about the parable now before I read it. This is a series about parables, and scholars are mixed as to whether this is even a parable. It's found with other parables, and it does have elements of symbolism in it, so people say, yeah, it's a parable, but most scholars seem to think, no, this, isn't, this is a prophecy. Jesus is actually des- describing exactly what's going to happen, and that, that becomes very instructive to us to realize, oh, Jesus is saying, this isn't just a story, this is something that is really going to happen. So let's begin in verse 31, where Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now let me stop here for a moment, but it starts with this phrase, when the son of man comes in his glory. Other places it talks about him, Jesus coming in the father's glory. The title used here, though, son of man, as many of you know, was the favorite title Jesus used to describe himself. And it's a wonderful, it's a brilliant title. I mean, everything Jesus did was brilliant, but uh, this title is perfect. He constantly called himself the son of man. And why it's brilliant is that it captures both his humanity and the fact he's God. He's God in the flesh. Both are captured. To call him a son of man is basically to say he was a son of Adam and he was fully human. He had flesh and blood. One of the ancient heresies of the church over the last couple thousand years is one that, did, that says Jesus didn't really have a physical body. They believe physical bodies were kind of bad and Jesus wouldn't have one. No, he had a physical body. He was a man. And it emphasizes his humanity to say son of man. But the title son of man comes from the Old Testament and it's a reference to the deity of Christ. Daniel 7.14, Daniel talks about this. It's talking about the son of man. We read, he, the son of man, was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed or not be destroyed. This is describing someone that's going to be entered into the presence of God, seated at the right hand of God, and he's God. And he has an eternal kingdom. And this was the phrase that actually got Jesus accused of blasphemy and the judgment against them to be crucified because they specifically said, are you that guy that Daniel talked about, the son of man? And Jesus said, you will see the son of man coming in glory. And he quoted from Daniel. Now, our parable today is about Jesus coming in glory. And when is that going to happen? What's going to happen when he comes to set up his kingdom? Now, Jesus again began by saying, when the Son of Man comes with his glory and all the angels with him, and I I don't think we can overemphasize the implication of, of all of this in terms of who this Jesus was and is. 
He's coming in the very glory of God the Father. All the angels of heaven are subject to him, and you realize, who is this guy that's going to reign forever and ever? And so Jesus begins when the Son of Man comes with his glory and he's going to call the nations before him and he's going to separate sheep from goats or whatever. So Matthew 25, 32, we continue. So all the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In biblical times, the two animals would graze together, but at night the sheep were separated, or actually the goats were separated. The sheep stayed outside because they had the fur, the wool, to keep them warm. The goats didn't. And so they would separate the goats to a different place, which is what this is about here. But let me make some observations. The verse said, all the nations will be gathered before him. I want you to understand that the word nations, when used in the New Testament and the Old is most of the time in the Bible a reference to Gentiles or non-Jews. Now, this is going to matter here in a minute as I begin to explain this. But this is describing all the nations of earth coming, being gathered by Christ when he returns to rule on this earth. Second, I want to make the point that it says he's going to gather the nations and separate them one from another. I just want you to realize that in the Greek language in, this, in which this is written, the them does not refer to the nations anymore. It's, it's talking about individuals. He's going to gather all the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, they're going to all stand before Christ, and he's going to separate, and the word them is a, a Greek word that modifies something other than nations. It's the individuals. He's going to separate, this is a sheep, this is a goat. Now, again, this is a separation that is going to take place, I think, when... Christ comes back to rule on the earth. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the final judgment, the final, what's called the great white throne judgment is going to take place a thousand years later, and that is indeed an indictment to hell. That one is. But let me quote Dr. Barberi about this. He explains this. He says this judgment. He's talking about this judgment. He said, this is not the same as the great white throne judgment, which involves only the wicked and which follows the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Christ. The judgment of the Gentiles will occur 1,000 years earlier, in other words, at the return of Christ, in order to determine who will and will not enter his kingdom. He's setting up a millennial kingdom. And he's excluding a bunch of people, and we discover at the end where they're headed. And then there's this other group that's there. Now, in order to understand this, I, I put together a chart. Actually, I wrote it out, and Brandy Gibson did an amazing job of making it so you can understand what it says here. But if you got the chart in your hand this morning when you came in, I'd like you to pull it out and look at the side with the, the physical timeline on it there. If you're watching this online, this is available through the Ridge app, our church app. We have an app out there, and you can download it from there. But I want us to see the basic timeline because we have to understand the, the nature of this particular sheep and goats thing because most of us have in our mind that the story of the sheep and goats happens at the end of time. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not when this occurs. So let's look at this timeline for a moment. We're in our present day right now. A lot of Christians call this the end times. Uh, we might be in the end times. We may not. Every generation thought this is it. You know, this is the, the generation that will see Jesus come back. Uh, the others were all wrong. Because he didn't, obviously. I think we're in the end times. I got a lot of reasons why. But the biggest one is this, that everything has happened at a pace. 
It's moving down a track incredibly fast. And the starting point was in 68, 40 years to the day of my wedding. 40 years to that date, the birth of the nation of Israel, an impossible task, began, I think, a timeline, but things are... Who, who would deny that things are happening at a pace unbelievable now in terms of a one-world government. But we're in the present times, and, and I've given you references that talk about what it's going to be like in the present day leading up to this. It's, I think Matthew 24 is especially instructive, and these all line up. The next thing on this timeline I have is the seven-year rule of the Antichrist. I try to use all R's to make it memorable, but Scripture teaches that there's going to be a world ruler that's going to make a peace agreement with Israel in the last days. It's going to last seven years. It's a seven-year peace agreement. Now, I'm looking for that peace agreement to be signed because that will kick off, not necessarily if someone comes in, it happens to be seven and this, that may not be that, but it may be. But we know that the Antichrist, someone described as the Antichrist, is going to rule for seven years, and that period is called the tribulation. In fact, the second half of that seven years, Jesus described it as the worst persecution and worst trouble the world has ever seen since the beginning of time and ever again. It'll never be like this again. It'll be really, really bad the second half of that. Now, you notice above that rule of Christ, I got that word rapture. And Christians disagree when this will happen. <clears throat> I talked about the rapture two weeks ago. The rapture just, the word just means to be caught up. And you remember when Jesus was on the mountain with his disciples for the last time, there were 500 of them gathered on a mountain, and then Jesus returned to his Father. He was caught up into heaven, into the clouds, it says. And then some angels appeared and said to those gathering around, why are you looking up? This same Jesus that left is going to come back in exactly the same way. And we know, and I've got the rapture, or all those references up above the third word rapture on that chart that talk about that event where we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus, okay? But the timing of that event, Christians disagree about. Some people think that that rapture is going to happen at the beginning of that seven-year rule or maybe just before the agreement is signed, but right about that time, there'll be this event. So we're going to miss all the tribulation. Some think it's going to happen in the middle when this agreement is made, or the Antichrist breaks his peace agreement with Israel. And some think it's going to happen at the end. Now, most of my life, I was in what's called the pre, pre-trib rapture thing. In other words, pre-tribulational rapture. The rapture happens and I'll be gone. Last 20 years or so, I've, I've been convinced that we're going to face some of this. I think that we're going to be part of this. And this matters in terms of interpreting the parable we're going to look at. But Christians disagree. I hope we're gone before it even starts. It's going to be bad. So you got the present day. you got the seven-year rule of the Antichrist. At the end of the seven-year period, you've got, down below it, the return of Christ. So Jesus is going to come in glory. Now, the rapture is kind of part of that because we're going to be taken up to heaven to be with Jesus, but then we're going to come down to rule with him, and so he's going to begin a thousand-year reign of Christ. And underneath that return of Christ, you see what I call the first reckoning. It's the first judgment day. And I've got the references again. Daniel, there's that Daniel one again. Jesus talked about this. Our, Our parable today is about this. So I want us to know that our parable is there. The separation of the sheep and goats occurs there. Jesus will then reign for a thousand years, and I believe that's literal. You can read it for yourself in Revelation 20. 
And then there'll be the final reckoning I have below there. After the thousand years, that's the great white throne judgment. And I've got all the references there. And then the renewal of all things. And that's the new heaven and new earth. Now, that's the basic timeline. But our parable is about kind of that middle point. So, and on the back of your handout, by the way, you'll see then I've spelled out some of the individual verses that make the point I'm trying to make. So... Let's get back to the parable. We read about a separation of sheep and goats and when he comes back and everything. The question is, on what basis is he going to separate the two? Because I hope we don't want to be the sheep, not the goats. And so we want to know, on what basis is he going to separate the two? And the answer is surprising. It's not the answer I would give. It's the right answer. Anytime the Bible disagrees with me, it wins. But let's see the answer Jesus gave, the king. He's called the king here. Then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Now now he's explaining why. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Now this is odd. They're being invited to join Christ's kingdom based on these deeds of piety. That's not what I would expect. Now, realize that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom and the physical kingdom that Jesus is going to set up is a, a physical manifestation of that. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's the kingdom of God. But we believe that a person does not get into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God by doing good deeds. None of us are righteous enough. None of us are good enough. You can't get to heaven by doing good deeds. And if this is the basis of getting into the kingdom of heaven, we're in trouble because none of us knows how many good deeds you have to do. And what happens if on one occasion you decide not to give that cup of water to someone who is in need? No, we know that the way we get right with God from Genesis to Revelation is through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. We get right with God on the basis of faith. Paul said, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. Grace is something you don't deserve anyway. For by God's grace and kindness, you are saved or delivered from your sin through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And then he goes on to say, and it's not as a result of works. Not about. So this is a little bit perplexing. So let's continue reading, and then let me, let me resolve the problem. Verse 37 Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, now he's again called king at this point, will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, and and the word brothers there is brethren, like in King James Version of the Bible, means men and women, Whatever you did for the least of these brethren of mine, you did for me. Now, again, a casual reading of this would make it look like that they earned their way into Christ's kingdom. And there's no doubt that the people that are standing there that he said you did these things, they are coming in to his kingdom. But it looks like they're being invited in on the basis of their deeds, but that's not what it's about. Here's the answer here. 
Jesus is saying people will be judged on the basis of their deeds because their deeds reflect their faith or lack thereof. Now, you read Romans 2, you'll see the same idea. People are going to be judged on the basis of their deeds. But it's because their deeds reflect that they were people of faith who really knew Jesus or they weren't. And in this way, and this is what Jesus said earlier in this exact same talk. Earlier on, he said, a tree's known by its fruit. That's how you know. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You look at the fruit. Is this someone that knows Jesus? Because if they do, they're going to do these kinds of things. Tree is known by its fruits. Now, I'm not the only one that thinks this. A scholar by the name of I.D. Campbell explains it this way. Matthew is not telling us that people who do good deeds will go to heaven. Rather, he's telling us that good deeds are an evidence of true discipleship and genuine faith. I'm convinced he's absolutely right. H.M. Haller puts it this way, the works of mercy and compassion of these Gentiles toward Christ will demonstrate that they are believers. See, in this way, then, their deeds actually do indict them. It's not about saying, well, I didn't know you, Jesus, or whatever. No, they're being indicted on the basis of their deeds, which prove that they were not people of faith. Now, I want you to know from Howler's explanation here, it says, the works of mercy and compassion of these Gentiles toward Christ will demonstrate that they are believers. I want to note again the word Gentiles. He called them Gentiles. So, let me talk about this. There's a big clue right here in interpreting this parable. It's a clue that it's easy to overlook. If you were just reading this parable, you'd say, oh, this is the parable or the prophecy or whatever about the, the, goat, the sheep and the goats. And that's all you, you know, we just read about the sheep and the goats and Jesus is separating them and we want to make sure we're in the right group. Did you notice there's another group standing there? And that group is the key to interpreting the passage. There's another group. Who are they? Well, they're the brethren. They're called the brethren. Well, that's kind of interesting because aren't the sheep the brethren? There's another group here. The, the brethren are the people that need the water. They need the clothes. They need the food. They, they're the ones that are going to be in prison and suffering. They need shelter. They were the ones that were used so that you could decide who the sheep were by the fact that they treated the brethren a certain way. So who are the brethren? Who are the sheep? Who are the goats? Okay, the sheep and the goats in the story are Gentiles. When Jesus comes, he's going to gather the nations together, the Gentiles and all the people on earth are going to be gathered before him on this judgment day, and they're going to be, there's going to be a host of Gentiles, but they're going to be mixed together. Some are going to be goats, and some are going to be sheep. Now, the sheep, from my perspective, are believers in Christ. They're Christians. And this is a little bit tough. Now, maybe these were ones who, during the seven-year period at some point, found Jesus and they became Christians and the proof of their faith was shown in how they treated these brethren. It might be that or we might be here. Some of us might be here when this happens. But Jesus said, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they answer me. I give to them eternal life. You see the relationship there. My sheep, I'm the shepherd. My sheep, they hear my voice. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? He said, I speak to them and they, they speak to me and I give those ones eternal life because I have a relationship with them. The sheep are believing Gentiles. So who are the goats? Unbelieving. It's the rest of them. So who are the brethren? It's the Jewish people. 
It's the Jewish people that are going to suffer during the tribulation period like no people ever on the planet have. Because what we know is going to happen in the middle of this tribulation period, and this is the timing of this parable, and when we talk about them being the brethren, by the way, it's like they, they are his physical brethren of Jesus. They, they are the Jewish people. In the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to break the agreement that he made, the seven-year agreement. He's going to go into the temple and defile it, and then an inter- intense worldwide persecution is going to break out against the Jewish people. And that's very clear from Revelation and other places. They're going to be hunted to the death The Holocaust was horrific. This is worse. Jesus said, this is going to be, nothing like this has ever happened. I mean, Jesus said, if I delayed much longer, there'd be no one alive. None of them alive. Of course, that's what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to destroy the Jewish people because in Revelation, we know that the kingdom, that the kingdom he's setting up has to include 144,000 actual Jewish people from the 12 tribes of Israel. But what if you could wipe them out? What if the devil could work it out so they get all killed first? Then, then the prophecy could never come to pass. That's what he's trying to do. Now, if you put it all together, then you realize well, then what's going to happen here. And by the way, the persecution is going to start against the Jewish nation. It's then going to move toward the Christians. Now, if you want proof of that, write down Revelation 12, 17 where it talks about they're going to pursue the Jewish nation, and then he's going to go, the Antichrist and all his forces are going to go after what's called the rest, the rest of the believers, the rest of the children of God. That's, well, they're not Jews. It's, it's Christians. And all of this is going to break out. Now, my point is that because of this initial persecution, the Jewish people are going to need hands and feet and arms and legs. They're going to need people, just like in the Holocaust, who came along and said, come, I've got a hidden room in my house. Let me feed you. Let me clothe you. And the only person that would do such a thing in this intense environment would be someone who knows Jesus because if you don't know Jesus, you'd never do that. that, You're you're risking your life to do what is going to be asked. But this is what I think whoever are believers in that time, they're going to be called to do. And they're going to want to do it because they're going to see what's happening because they'll know their Bibles. They'll know this stuff. I think it'll be real clear. Dr. Barberi again explains about the three groups, the brothers, the sheep, and the goats. He says, the expression these brothers must refer to a third group that's neither sheep nor goats. The only possible group would be Jews, physical brothers of the Lord. In view of the distress in the tribulation period, it is clear that any believing Jew will have a difficult time surviving. The forces of the world dictator will be doing everything possible to exterminate all Jews. A Gentile going out of his way to assist a Jew in the tribulation will mean that Gentile has become a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, part of Jesus' point in telling this parable is to instruct believers in the last days, this is what you're expected to do. Because this persecution is going to start and there's going to be a window in which we'll have opportunities to protect. But then it's coming for us as well. So what happens then to the goats? These are ones, by the way, that joined the Antichrist. These were the ones that got the mark of the beast who have sealed their fate. These were ones that were with the Antichrist and hunting down the Jewish nation and Christians. 
Matthew 25, 41, then it'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Of course, we learned from this that hell was originally made for the devil and his angels, but those who align themselves with him will share in his fate. That's what's going to happen. This is going to be the final thing. Jesus is coming back. He's going to separate which ones of you aligned with Christ, which ones of you aligned with the Antichrist, the one who aligned with me. Once you're coming into my kingdom to rule with me. And the others, of course, will face an eternal destiny. And I don't know if they're, they're cast into judgment right then or if they're part of the group at the very end of Revelation, but their destiny is secure. But let's wrap up the story beginning of verse 42 where the king is saying to the goats, for I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me sick and in prison, you didn't care for me. Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I know it's a sobering, sobering message. Let me give you two applications here. One is that I think part of the point of this parable might be to examine the fruit of your life. I mentioned earlier, Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. And so... I think people go to churches for years sometimes and they just assume I'm someone, you know, I'm obviously a Christian, I'm here, you know, and, and they think I do good things, but they don't stop to evaluate, do I really know Jesus? And the question is, does the fruit of my life reveal the things I do? In this parable, it was helping people in need, but do the things I do reflect I really know Jesus Christ? And I think we should just stop and ask that. Do I, do I, am I sure about this thing? Paul challenged the Corinthians to do just this. He said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself. He said, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Do you, do you, realize, do you, do you recognize whether he's in you or not? And, and I think, some, and by the way, we don't need to know or wonder where we are with this because God has promised eternal life to those who put their trust in his son. We just need to come to a point where we reach out to Jesus as God's solution to the problem. We say yes to him. Because he died in our place for our sin. He paid the full price of everything you ever did wrong. God executed him for you and for me. And, and the payment was made and he died. But he rose again. God accepted his payment on your behalf. But to get that forgiveness, you've got to turn to Jesus as your savior. And so John wrote, as many as receive him, to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. And so you, have you reached out to Jesus to save you from your sin? If you already know where you stand with God, I want to ask you this. Do you realize that when you serve, especially other believers, the least of these brethren of mine, that you're serving Jesus? Your, his hands to a brother or sister in need? Your, your feet your mouth, the things you share, the things we do for others, because we know Jesus. See, these are things that are born out of this relationship with Christ. It causes us then to serve others. All of those become the evidence, the fruit that, yes, we know Jesus. And so what are you doing for Jesus? This is the question. How are you serving him? How are you, the hands and feet or mouth of Jesus to others? 
We're going to close with this song called Life Defined. And the answer to the song really is life is defined by Jesus. But the chorus goes along these lines, be all I am, my life defined by being crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in the Jesus Christ who lives in me. Basically saying that my life is defined by the fact Christ lives in me. And that's what we're asking Christians to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have loved us enough to reveal in your word what's coming. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid. Thank you for your son Jesus who gave his life for us so that through him we can have eternal life. Thank you for the promise we have that if we align ourselves with him, we will have eternal life. That we will join Jesus in the air one day. We will come to reign with Christ one day. And so we, we celebrate that. But in the meantime, Lord, let us live with the realization that he's coming back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.